We've been going through the book of Romans, and uh, this is this is certainly a, uh, a difficult book to to get your head around because Paul uh, doesn't just go through a very easy to understand outline. He kind of moves around fluidly through the ideas that he's presenting, but don't get any idea that he's being chaotic. He is. He has got. Uh, a clear picture of the gospel, which he introduces in chapter 1, that he is pushing through to this church in Rome. And we need to remember that that church in Rome is much like our church. It's a mixture of people. In his day, it was Jews and Gentiles, but there were all kinds of people in that church. Some were believers, some were not believers. And so you had a, a tremendous diversity and a lot of change, cultural change, going on in the world and in the church. And Paul starts out his letter by explaining why the world is the way it is. What's going on? Why are people the way they are? Why is the world the way it is? And Paul very clearly, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 32, in just a few verses he explains why the world is the way it is. And it's not because He made it that way. We cannot blame God for the way the world is. The blame lies right at our feet. And it's only when we acknowledge that and start to own our responsibility that we can then have the doors open to us to look beyond ourselves to the God who created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, he talks about the religious people, Jews, and then even religious Gentiles. He said, you know, the relationship with God has been broken, and, and even religious people cannot find their way to God. It takes faith. And in chapter 4, he uses Abraham, the father of the faithful, to explain why we need to be justified not by our merit, not by our works and our actions, but by the, by the goodness and grace of God. God gives it to us with nothing in return from us except for trusting Him. So we put all our trust in Him. In chapter 5, he talks about the first and second Adam and why Jesus is the second Adam, the one who is going to usher in a new creation. In chapter 6, he explains that union with Jesus Christ through baptism is what frees us and breaks the power of sin in our life. We were freed from the penalty of sin. He explains at the end of chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And before that, he says, Christ came as a propitiation. You shouldn't be afraid of these theological words. They're, they're just can't trade them in for something else. Propitiation means the one who satisfies all the requirements of God, both in life and in death. He covers everything. So the penalty is gone. The power is gone. Then we come to chapter 7, and that's where it starts to get a little rocky because scholars don't all agree who Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. Clearly, verses 1 through 14, he's talking about himself and his past, his relationship to God through the law of God, the Ten Commandments. But then, 
Going forward from chapter uh, 14 through the end of the chapter uh, 25, he's talking about, he's using himself and he's talking about me, but the things he says about himself, the struggles that he's having, the, the realization that he's still in some way enslaved to sin. He's still under the power and influence of sin. And, and we stop and think, oh my goodness, is this man contradicting himself? And the reality is, is no, he's not contradicting himself. And scholars said, well, scholars say, well, is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about somebody else or some, you know, some uh, imaginary person maybe before they were Christians? But most of the good scholars, the ones that, that we follow, we don't follow any bad scholars. All of ours are good. And they're uh, above reproach. Uh, <laughs> they are, actually. And, and so when you look at the, the way the, the context is, you have to come away that, with the idea that Paul is speaking about himself, his ongoing struggle with sin. And that's the position that I'm going to take with you. If you want to look at the other position, it's very interesting. And uh, if you want to adopt that for yourself, it's okay. Lots of people are seeing it differently. But I'm, I'm going to present the idea that it is Paul, and he's talking about being free from the penalty of sin, being free from the power of sin. But in chapter 7, he explains very clearly that we are still in the presence of sin. As long as we're in this mortal body, we're in the presence of sin, and sin is going to exert a certain amount of influence over us if we let it. We don't have to let it, but if we let it. And so let's read the passage. I'm sorry for the long introduction, but I think it was necessary. Let's read this passage starting in Romans. Uh, we're, we're actually going to read the last two verses of 7, but we're going to read part of 8. And so hear the word of God. Verse 24 of chapter 7. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Chapter 8, so now there is no condemnation to those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the living, life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin. That leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Listen, so God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. The ESV reads, in us, can be both. 
who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Those controlled by Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law. And it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says at the end of 7, What a miserable man I am. Who, he asks a rhetorical question, he knows the answer, so do all of we, Who will deliver us from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Who's going to come and do this? Only someone who knows Jesus Christ would recognize that they're in misery. You know, I didn't wake up to misery until Christ became alive before my eyes. I didn't know I was miserable. I loved my sin. I thought my sin would satisfy me, and I thought I could live my life just sinning, and I would be okay, and maybe I would act right once in a while, but only when it did me good, only to get something for myself. Even my good actions were manipulative. And if you're honest, you know that's what we are. We are so self-absorbed that even when we do something and we think it's not selfish, somewhere back there in our mind, we're thinking that we're going to accrue something from it. We're going to get something. Someone's going to think good about us or feel a good way about us. How would he know he's in misery unless he was now a Christian? And so the first 13 verses of uh, Romans 7 are in the past tense. But he does switch tenses. I explained this to you last week. And this is why scholars believe uh, that it's Paul himself speaking. He goes 14 through 25. He's in the present tense. Now these things are true. And there's a struggle. In the first part of Romans 7, there's no struggle. He's just under bondage. He's in death. But something happens. The law caused him to become hopeless and needy and recognized. And he said, when I saw that, I died. And that death waked him up, woke him up, brought him out of his darkness to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe me, folks, that has happened to any of you that are trusting Jesus. It happens at least once at our conversion. And hopefully it happens regularly. As you walk through life and you get messed up, 
you're returning to that reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He is the object of that faith in our lives. And Paul says this is going to be a struggle. Who will, who will deliver us? Thank God, Jesus Christ. Now, there, there's a chapter break, but in reality, if you know, there's no chapter breaks. There's not even any punctuation in Greek. It's all just running text. And so people that could read Greek and, and understand it had to punctuate it uh, based on the context. And so what Paul, there's no chapter 8 verse 1. He's just moving right along. So try to think of it in that way. Because there's a tremendous link between 7.25 and 8.1. And that's really, honestly, folks, that's the link that we need to move into the victorious life that he has hinted at in these seven chapters leading up. He's been talking about broken from the power of sin. The penalty's been paid how are we going to live? And ah, this tension in the world and we're just wrestling with sin and sin is exerting its power and influence over us and we're fighting it back. What's going to do that? What is going to help us? And now he's moving into this chapter where he explains how we do it. Couldn't be more important. It's about living in the Spirit. And I'll explain to you what I believe and what others in, in scholar, scholarly uh circles believe Paul is getting at. And if you take away from it what you what will help you. Paul says, who's going to deliver? In my mind, I want to obey God's law. This new self, all of I don't know, we asked I asked you a few weeks ago, who wants to obey God's law? Everybody raised their hand. Everyone wants to. Can we? And if we can, how? How exactly are we going to obey God's law? He doesn't just do away with the law. He told us it was good. How do we relate to the law? There's a battle declared in chapter 7, but in chapter 8, Paul is telling us this is a battle you cannot lose. This is from Tim Keller's uh, commentary on Romans. You cannot lose this battle. But make no mistake, folks, it's going to be a battle. It's not a it's not a you know like going to Disneyland. So let, let's look at what he's talking about here in chapter eight very quickly. We'll spend a few weeks in here. First of all, in the first few verses, he's talking about a new relationship that you have now with God. Later on he's going to talk about adoption. So he's what he's saying is that you and I have now moved from there to here. We're in a new family, we have a new name, we have a, a new nature. We have a Father in heaven and a Savior who has saved us and a Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives in us. The entire Holy Trinity is working in our lives to make sure that we don't lose the battle. He's going to help us in the battle. He's going to even do more than that. So look at verse 1 and 2. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. After all these seven chapters, he's saying everything that I've said in these chapters can now be summed up in this statement, no condemnation for those that belong in Christ. What does no condemnation mean? I don't know a Christian, including myself, who who lives as if this is true. Yes? 
We do not believe this. What we believe is that we move in and out of condemnation. When we're doing our devotionals in the morning and where everything's going good and, and we're really praying and then some thought about somebody you can't stand comes into your mind. Maybe you're married to them. I don't know. And, and you, it jumps into your mind. And you think, oh my goodness, now yeah, that's a sin and we sin. So we move at, back into condemnation and we confess our sin and all that. Then we move back into no condemnation and we live our lives like that. We live our lives constantly jumping back and forth. We do not believe the Apostle Paul, what he says. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Can you get into Christ and then be taken out of Christ? No. How would that be possible that you go in and come out and go in and come out? If that's true, then folks, you're saved by works. Get over it. And go join a church that believes that. Don't pretend that you're a Protestant. Protestants believe we're saved by grace, but we still can't get over this law that clings to us and and is over us like that if you're going to live under that. And Paul is saying, don't live under the law. Live under Christ, then obey the law. He's, He's changing the whole scheme of how people relate to God. There's no condemnation. What is condemnation? Liabilities. He removes every liability, every bit of guilt, every bit of shame. He pays every penny of debt. There is nothing left. If he went to look for it, it would be gone. God doesn't see it anymore. What he sees is his son hung on a cross with all of that mess on Him, not on you. How dare we come back and say, oh, I'm under condemnation. It's impossible. The reality of the cross is too stunning. It's too powerful. It's too majestic. Nothing can compare with it. But we get used to it and we think, oh, well, you know, it, the, the cross helps me. No. Salvation, folks. It's not cooperation. Salvation is salvation. We don't cooperate to get salvation. It's impossible. How would we do it? God is the one who sends His Son. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. When you come to Jesus, He takes your sin, all your guilt, your shame, all of it away. You're going to deal with it the rest of your life. Chapter 7 says that, and even parts of 8 and so on. But... It's gone in reality as far as God is concerned. And so our relationship to Him must change. If you want to walk in victory, if you want to have the peace He talks about, you've got to change the way you're thinking. He's going to talk about this later, about renewing your mind. There's no condemnation. Why? Because we belong to Him. We belong to Him. The power of the life-giving Spirit is in us. See, verse 1 and 2. The power of the Spirit. We are free from the power of sin that leads to death. This is a settled thing for us, folks. We don't live with death in front of us. Christians do not live with death in front of us. We live with death behind us. 
in an empty grave. That's where our death went. And so I've told you over the years, you'll never see the inside of a grave. If the Bible is true, if what Jesus said is true, when you close your eyes in death, when you'll open them again and see him. Not the inside of a grave, because when he opened his eyes, he saw the blackness of the grave for you as you. He took our place. This is what Paul is wanting the people in Rome to see. You've got to move out of this death mindset and move into the life of the Spirit that He is moving in you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. And it's not based on how good you are, how bad you are. He's going to be there through thick and thin. Christians are not moving back and forth between condemnation, no condemnation, condemnation like that you know David he loves me he loves me not he loves me he loves me not what's the basis of that well it's chance and your good works who wants that does anyone in this room want your life to be nothing and everything decided by chance and God is just up there and kind of watching and saying well let's see what they do No, He is intimately involved. And the only reason the Spirit came in the power and fullness that He did is because Jesus was, I don't know how to put it, He was gutted on the cross. Everything out for us so that we could then be filled by His blessed Holy Spirit. Just because we trust Him. I'll fill you with my Spirit. And he'll never leave you. Wow. There is no condemnation. So the basis of our invitation to come to God on any day, any moment, any time of your life, the basis, the reason that you're able to step from your mess back into his glorious grace and have him throw his arms around you is because he loves you. Because of what Christ has done for you. The righteousness of Jesus opens that door. And God has left it open and said, you're welcome. Well, can I, I messed up. Come, run to me. Hurry. Don't try to fix it yourself. Get over here. Then we'll work on that. Whatever it is. But too often we do something and we just go back into condemnation. We take ourselves back under the law. We put ourselves back because we feel guilt. We feel shame naturally. But he's dealt with it. What do you do when you sin and you just really mess up and you just it's just terrible? What do you do? Get up early and start having your devotions. Yes? Repent. Instantly, quickly. Christians are good repenters. We repent quickly. We don't want anything in our way between us and God. And then we run to Jesus. That's where the Pharisees, I've told you this, the Pharisees were good repenters, but they would not go to their king. They said, no, we'll just go back to obedience. And so we'll repent. Yeah, we did bad things, but we're going to go to obedience now. Watch, look how good we are. And folks, as a Christian, if you go that way from repentance back to obedience and you don't first go to your Savior, 
you will live a miserable life. Christianity will be nothing but a burden for you. So, listen to what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said about about this, and uh, I found this in Tim Keller's notes. When Christians sin now, listen, this is amazing. When Christians sin now, they're not offending against the law, but against love. You may and should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. Our relationship to God has changed. There's no condemnation. We're invited to run to Jesus. And that changes our relationship to the law. Look at verse 3. Moses, he's telling us this. Paul. Moses was unable to save us because of the law of Moses, because of the weakness of our flesh. We could never obey the law. We still cannot obey the law. The law holds no life for us. The only thing the law brings to the table, it's good, it's holy, it's righteous, but the only thing it brings to our table is death because we can't keep it. So what does he say? Moses, the law of Moses is unable to save us. So God did what the law could not do. We should rejoice in that. What the law could not do is it could not save us. You see, he's talking with parallels. He sent his own son in a body like we have, and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, what this sentence means is that Jesus took our condemnation. That's why there's no condemnation. God doesn't just say, ollie, ollie, oxen free. Everybody come, run to base, you're okay. No, somebody else took our condemnation. Something happened to our condemnation that is irreversible. It cannot be undone. And the scriptures tell us anybody that will run to him, anybody that will appeal to him in faith will be forgiven. Now, does that mean that we don't, uh, we can just be cavalier about our sins? Oh, great, I'm going to go send my, you know, myself to death, which you will. I'm just going to have lots of fun with sin. God's going to forgive me anyway. That's presumption and don't think you'll be forgiven. You will not. He gave his son as a sacrifice. And he did this. This is where how we know that we can't just run around and act however we want. Verse 4. He did this so the just requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us and for us. Jesus did all this not so that we, uh, so that he would obey for us. He did it so that we could obey so that we can be free from the power of sin and death. In his commentary, Dr. Hendrickson says this, and I I just want to remind you this before we go to the next point. The law cannot save or condemn. Rather, the law, listen to this, is the means for the expression of our gratitude. As such... It is the object of our delight, even though in this present life, complete obedience is impossible. 
our relationship to the law is changed because our relationship to God is changed. He frees us, not so that we don't have to obey Him. He frees us so that we can obey Him and do it with delight instead of out of fear and duty and obligation as if we're going to pay Him back. As if we're going to go into our pockets and say, here, I've got to have something. I've got to do something. Well, I'll obey and that will count for something. That kind of thinking is deadly. It just destroys the joy in our lives when we obey. It just takes it all away. I'm obeying because I'm afraid. Fear is indeed a good motivator. Fear that something's going to happen if I disobey. Maybe God will do this or that or the other thing. But what a way to live. And the scriptures say what about fear? Perfect love casts out fear. I want to ask you where you find perfect love. Not from me. Not in a marriage. Not in a family. Not from your children. Not from anything. Perfect love is what was demonstrated in Jesus. And Jesus took a stake, wooden stake, and he drove it into the heart of the vampire of fear that sucks every bit of life out of us. And he killed it. And he says, do not be afraid now. Don't serve me out of fear. Well, do we fear out of duty and obligation? Yes. But when we do, we need to repent of that kind of obedience. Dr. Gerstner said, repent of your damnable good deeds. Because that's all they are, is damnable good deeds. They're not good deeds. They're not something you can ever hold up. You're simply doing them because it pleases your Father to no end to see you in the battle engaged and not willing to lay down back under the law something He satisfied in the body and blood and actions of His Son. Yes? Okay. So that brings us to the end of this. A new relationship to life itself. Let me, let me see if I can help you with this because Paul goes back and forth and it sounds like he's doing exactly what I told you we're not doing, going from condemnation to, to no condemnation. But that's not what he's doing. He's contrasting two kinds of life. New life and old life. Look at verse 5. Those dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Who's that? That's the old person. That's the dead person. That's people that don't trust Jesus or the other people. Look at the next uh, verse or the next part. Those controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. You know, I don't know about you, but even when I'm sinning in my mind and I'm thinking about something I shouldn't or I'm feeling a grudge or uh, envy or jealousy or pride or whatever it is, there's still something there that's pushing back against it. What is that? My goodness? Mine? Just because I'm a good guy and I, you know, I'm just wonderful and I don't look 68 and I, you know, all of that? No, it's not that. It's the Spirit of God. Are you going to give yourself credit for feeling bad about your sins? No, the Holy Spirit is saying, ah, stop that. He's the one that's acting in our lives because He loves us. Wow. 
Those controlled by Holy Spirit, think of the things that please. It's not merely about your mind. It's what's controlling your mind. Look at verse 6. Letting the sinful nature control the mind leads to death. He's not talking about you. He's talking about them. He's not saying you can move. Oh, if you think sinful things, your sinful nature is in control, then you're going to die. As a Christian, you move from life to death. Misery. That is miserable. Even Jackson thinks it's miserable. And if that little doll back there thinks it's miserable, so should you. Because you're not a doll like him. Letting the sinful nature control our mind leads to death. He's talking about people that are still under the control. They're still dead. They're not converted to Christianity. But those that let the Spirit control their mind leads to life and peace. That's us. You know, even when you're just getting out of the worst sin you can imagine and you move back to Jesus, if you do it the way we teach you in this church, you sin and then you go, oh my goodness, what did I do? Okay, Chuck said run to Jesus. And we turn and we say, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me because you're the one that died on the cross. You're the one that fulfilled the law. You're the one that lived the perfect life for me. You're the one that loves me so well. And the Father gave me the Spirit and therefore I will run to you and I will turn my life back to new obedience. Now you're talking. Now you're talking about joy and Christian life. Fighting back against this, this worldly age that's pressing in. But you don't move from death back into life. Death and life, death and life. That's not what he's talking about. Look at 7 and 8. The sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey. Remember, did, past. Never will. Those under the control of the sinful nature can never please God. He's not talking about Christians. Like carnal. I don't know if you all have remember the old debates about carnal Christians. That you can be a Christian and still be carnal. That's crazy. It's not possible. You can be a Christian and be foolish and sin and grieve the Holy Spirit and disappoint God and and hurt yourself to no end, but you don't lose your life. You're still alive and Jesus, the Spirit, will not leave you. Those under control of the sinful nature can never please God. But you believers, look at 9, You're not controlled. How much clearer can he make it? He's just contrasting those that are still dead in their sins and those that are now alive. Remember, you're controlled by the sinful. You're not controlled by the sinful. You're controlled by the Spirit. If the Spirit's living in you, I mean, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. He's just stating facts. Verse 10. Christ lives in you. So even though the body will die, you see, everybody's got to die because of sin. That's settled. But listen to this. Even though the body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. This is astonishing. Yes, your body will die. Everyone's body is going to die because that's a consequence of sin. But so did Jesus. 
He also died. Not for his sins, but for your sins. So the the consequences of sin were poured out on the Son of God and absorbed by him, and he took them with him into the grave so that you would not go into the grave. The Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit, look at 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you already. Lives in you right now. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, He will give life to the mortal bodies by the same living Spirit within you. Not yet. Now I don't know how, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've said already, not yet, at Christ the King. Unless, folks, unless you understand the already and not yet of your scriptures, you will live miserable in your Christianity. There's a lot of things that happen already, but the not yet, there's always a future that God has cast for us. He does tell us there is going to be a termination point in which a new creation is ushered in. And so if you don't want to live disappointed in your Christian life, learn the, the, the secret, the truth of reading your Bible and understanding already and not yet. We are already redeemed, but we're not yet glorified. We already have life in us, but we're not yet resurrected. Jesus entering the grave, folks, I don't know how to put this. It made room for us in his Father's house. Him going into that place opened that place. Do do you all see it? It's so profound. That's to be the controlling thing in our lives. So let me say these few things real quickly and then we'll, we'll finish. Living by the Spirit is, and we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, living by the Spirit is not an ethereal existence where you know we look for tingly feelings and we you know we start we we start exchanging our human intuition what we call the sixth sense whatever that sixth sense is in people some people have lots of it some don't but we start exchanging that human intuition and we start giving credit for that to the holy spirit say well the holy spirit told me this the spirit showed me that i felt the spirit telling me this I feel the Spirit moving me this way and all that. You know, that's okay. If that's your experience, that's good. But it's not healthy. Why is it not healthy? Because you're living apart from what the Spirit actually came to do. And that was to illuminate Jesus Christ and His Word. People that are truly led by the Spirit are people who are immersed in God's Word. People are spending time in prayer, thinking, even when you're battling sin, you're you're turning your mind to Him. At all moments, you're focused on Jesus Christ. That's living in the Spirit. He didn't send the Spirit to replace Him. He sent sent the Spirit so that you could... Walk with Jesus every day of your life and know Him and experience Him. 
and obey him, not out of fear, but out of faith, love, and gratitude. And I hope you'll trust him. Will you trust him for that? Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for all the things you've done for us. And yet, uh, while we're still here in this body, the pressures of this world, the, the lies of the enemy, the, the uh, habitual nature that we have, this habitual self that we're constantly fighting with is still present. And I do pray, Father, that you would free us from that uh, someday in the future and more and more each day as we walk in your spirit, following your word, obeying you, doing what you've called us to do. So please help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.